Over the past two weeks, we have covered the first two psalms of the Psalter. And as I stated in the introduction to Psalm 1, the Psalter does not reflect some haphazard arrangement. There is a rhyme and a reason to the placement and the progression of these psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 were selected to go first because they function quite well as introductions to the rest of the Psalter, each one dealing with a dominant theme that will recur over and over throughout this book. Psalm 1 laid out the way of the righteous and contrasted it with the way of the wicked. It reminded us that there are only two paths which we can tread. The way of God, which is the way of the Word, or the way of man, which is the way of the world. One ends in life and blessing, the other ends in death and destruction. Then last week, Gordon preached Psalm 2, which establishes the second great theme of the Psalter, the indomitable reign of the Lord's anointed King who will rule over all the nations of the earth. Once again, we saw that there are only two paths which humanity can take in relation to this coming king. They can either bow before God's king and serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling and submit to him and pay him homage and take refuge in his grace and in his power, or else they will kindle his wrath and they will perish in the way. The rest of the Psalter expounds upon these two great themes set forth in the first two Psalms. But, both psalms are idealistic. They deal with what will be true in the end, not with what is always apparent now. See, the fact is, and there will be psalms that elaborate upon this fact, that there are times in this age when the wicked prosper and the righteous perish. There are times in this age when the nations rage against God, against His Christ, and against His church, and it seems that it is they who shatter us with a rod of iron rather than the other way around. In other words, there are times, and they are frequent, when the ideal does not match up with the apparent reality. Why? Because we live in the tension between the now and the not yet. Christ, God's anointed king, has come and he is enthroned upon Zion. But Zion has not yet come down to earth in all of its fullness. Like we see, for instance, in Revelation 21. That awaits the second coming of Christ. In the meantime... In between these two comings, we live in an age of raging nations and plotting peoples. We battle enemies within and without. We fight against tribulation and trials and temptations, and we experience sufferings and sorrows. Now, we've seen the ideal established in Psalms 1 and 2, but now that we come to Psalm 3, the Psalter enters the real world. The Psalms turn from the ideal to the real. 
It turns from the sure and certain promise of things to come, and it intersects with the pain and trial of what is happening now. Now, this doesn't make Psalms 1 and 2 any less true. There will come a day when we will say, without a doubt, the righteous are indeed blessed and the wicked are indeed cursed. The righteous have indeed prospered and the wicked have indeed perished. There will come a day when we will see God's anointed king reigning over all the nations of the earth, having destroyed every last enemy and having saved every last man who has sought refuge in his mercy and in his grace. But that day is not yet. This day, August 5th, 2018, we battle sin and heartache. Our lives are marked by tribulation and turmoil. And yet, we can face it with the confident hope that what is promised in Psalms 1 and 2 is true. And this hope gives us the strength to persevere. That is what Psalm 3 and many more psalms like it are all about. Confidence rooted in the promises of the first two psalms in the midst of the crises of, these, of this life elaborated upon in many of the rest of the psalms. Psalm 3 is the first psalm that bears David's name. And this morning, we're going to follow David on his journey of faith as he walks through the darkest crisis of his life in order to see how he regains and retains his confidence in his God. And as we do, I want you to personally apply what we learn to the crisis of your life whatever that may be. So as we begin, I want you to ask yourself, what is it in my life that makes the ideal presented in Psalms 1 and 2 seem untrue in this moment? What is it in my life that is clouding my vision of God, is undercutting my faith in Him, is making it seem as if my world is is caving in. It could be a marriage crisis. It could be a job crisis. It could be a financial crisis. It could be a health crisis. It could be a crisis of my own making that results from my own sin. Or it could be a crisis which has been foisted upon me through no apparent fault of my own. Whatever it may be, I want you to join me as we follow David through his dark crisis and see how he deals with his own soul and leads his soul back to a bright and vibrant confidence in the covenant promise of God. My prayer is that by God's grace, we would be able to say, even in the midst of the darkness of our present crisis, What David says in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord, his blessing is upon his people. Now in order to understand this psalm, we need to explore the crisis in which it is set. Psalm 3 bears a superscription. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now this event is described for us in 2 Samuel 
chapters 15 and 16, and it is a sordid tale of sin, murder, rebellion, and revenge. It begins with the tale of a flawed father whose heart is absolutely ripped in two by his degenerate son. The story really begins back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 with the horrific sin of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. When Bathsheba became pregnant by David, David tried to cover up his sin by calling her husband Uriah home from the battle. And when that plan failed, David arranged for Uriah to be murdered, a scheme which resulted not just in Uriah's death, but in the death of a whole number of soldiers. In other words, David's sin brought destruction not only upon his own household and not only upon the household of Uriah, but upon the households of many in Israel whom David was entrusted to protect. I want you to think about it. How many households were wrecked as a result of David's sin? How many husbands did not come home to their wives? How many fathers did not come home to their children because David tried to hide his sin? Sin always, always, always has collateral damage. And 2 Samuel 11 is one of the most devastating chapters in all of the Bible. After Uriah's death, David married Bathsheba. But his heart had become calloused by sin, so God sent to him Nathan the prophet in order to confront him. And Nathan told David a story about a rich man who stole a poor man's lamb. And when David expressed his anger over this injustice, Nathan pointed his bony finger. I don't know if it was a bony finger, but it makes the story better. He pointed his bony finger at David and he said, you are that man. And he then pronounced the Lord's judgment upon David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And at that, David broke, and he confessed his sin. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And the next six chapters describe the outworking of God's discipline upon David. First, David's son dies in infancy, just as God had decreed. Then David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, was then murdered by David's other son Absalom, who then fled into exile, chapter 13. Eventually, David brought Absalom home from exile, but their relationship was forever strained, chapter 14. 
After a time, Absalom began to undermine David's authority in the eyes of Israel, and he gathered to himself the army of Israel in Hebron. And when David heard of it, he knew that he had lost the support of the nation. And so in order to save Jerusalem from bloodshed, he fled the city in shame. When Absalom entered Jerusalem and claimed the throne of Israel, the first thing he did, the first thing he did was to take David's concubines to go up to the roof of his father's palace and to violate them in the sight of all Israel. Just as God had said. Nevertheless, God spared David by means of the intrigue of his servant Hushai, who frustrated the counsel of David's servant who had betrayed him, Ahithophel. And in time, David gathered to himself all of the men who were still loyal to him. They defeated Absalom's armies in a great civil war. And Joab, the commander of David's forces, found Absalom tangled up in a tree and he ran three spears through his heart. Even with all that Absalom had done to David, David was completely undone by this news. 2 Samuel 18, 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This event stands as a testimony to the devastating effects of sin. Psalm 3 was composed in the midst of that crisis when David was fleeing Jerusalem before the invasion of Absalom and his forces. The poignant words of this psalm reflect the mood of David who is reaping, and he knows he is, he is reaping the bitter fruits of what he has sown. So let's look at the first two verses. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I want you to look first at how David opens this psalm. In the Old Testament, when you see the word LORD in all capital letters, that signifies that it's the covenant name of God, Yahweh. William Van Gemeren, the Old Testament scholar, writes that on the lips of a faithful Israelite, like David, to, to, to call the Lord by his covenant name, Yahweh, would be the Old Testament equivalent of that New Testament phrase, Abba, Father. It's the cry of a child for his dad. In other words, even in the midst of his crisis, David does not address God as one who is outside of the covenant. Which raises the question, to whom do you go in your darkest hour? To whom do you turn when all around your soul gives way? To whom do you go when you have broken every commandment the Lord has given you. David turned to Yahweh, the covenant Lord and the lover of his soul. And, and this is the strange and wonderful thing, 
he turns to the very God who has afflicted him with the discipline he is now enduring. Even though all of the heartache of the last few years in David's life have come at the hand of the Lord's discipline, to whom else could David turn but to his God? David is surrounded by enemies. The word he employs for foes implies constriction. Okay? It's, it's the image of a soldier who's engaged in, in a battle in hand-to-hand combat, it's, and it's like the circle around him is collapsing in on him. It's a suffocating word. Not only is he surrounded by foes, but the foes are multiplying. He says they are many, which means they are multitude. They are increasing. They are escalating. Did, didn't you get that sense when I recounted for you? Chapters 11 to 18 of 2 Samuel. From the time that Nathan declares the Lord's judgment upon David, things go from bad to worse. David's son dies in infancy. His son Amnon violates his daughter Tamar and then is subsequently murdered by his other son Absalom. Then Absalom begins working to steal away the loyalty of the people from David. And before long, Absalom commands not only the armies of Israel, but the loyalty of the nation. And as David and his supporters flee Jerusalem barefoot and weeping, he must have felt as if he was drowning in enemies. Can you feel the suffocating tension of the crisis that David is enduring? And can you relate Have you ever felt like the enemies, be they familial, relational, marital, financial, demonic, were just crushing in upon you? That's what David is feeling. And on top of everything else, there is the assertion of many that God has abandoned David. That God has removed from him his hand of blessing. That that David is accursed and is exiled from God's presence because of his many sins. In fact, this was the spoken contention of a man named Shimei, the son of Gerah, the tribe of Benjamin, of the family of Saul, who threw stones at David as he passed by. This is the Lord's anointed king who sat upon the throne of Israel just a few weeks prior, and now he is leaving Jerusalem barefoot and with his head covered in shame and in tears, and people are chucking stones at him. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. God has cursed you because of your sin. That's why all these things are happening to you. And in the midst of your crisis, it is very possible that people will say to you that very same thing. Well, you're just reaping what you've sown. Abandoned, accursed, banished from Israel, stripped of his kingdom, cut off from the covenant. That was the judgment 
of David's foes. And truth be told, there was probably no small part of David that had to agree. In 2 Samuel 15, when Zadok, the high priest of Israel, tried to follow David out of Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, David stopped him and, and, and told him to turn around and go back. Carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Don't bring the ark after me. I might be cursed. And when David's friends wanted to slay Shimei for his curses and his stones, David forbid them, saying, If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Maybe he's just acting out God's judgment. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Does it feel as if your enemies have surrounded you, that they're closing in on you, that they are suffocating you? And to make matters worse is... This a crisis of your own making due to the consequences of sin in your own life? Are you tempted to believe that God has cut you off from his covenant, that he has sent you away and cast you away from his presence, that he has damned you because of your sin? This is the crisis that tests our faith. We haven't looked yet at David's response. I haven't yet pointed to the answer to the crisis. All I'm trying to do at this point is to establish relevance, to show you that the Psalms, and this one in particular, speak directly into your present crisis. What are you going to do? I suggest that you do what David did. Turn to Yahweh, your covenant Lord, Because though he seems silent in the midst of crisis, as we will see, he will hear and he will answer from his holy hill. And furthermore, to whom else will you go? Cry out in your trouble and in your distress, O Lord, how many are my foes. Where else can I go? To whom else shall I turn? The first thing to do when the foes overwhelm you, when crisis strikes you, is to turn to the Lord your God. Which brings us to the second movement of the psalm. From the crisis that tests our faith to the cry that renews our faith. Look at verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Verse 3 then marks the turning point in the crisis. It represents David's determination to trust in the Lord no matter what. Okay? David knows full well that what he is enduring is discipline from the Lord's hand. Discipline for his sins. And we may ask the question, why 
why does God continue to discipline David so severely when David has already responded in repentance? And the answer is, and this is important for your present crisis, sin lightly forsaken is just as lightly taken up again. So God carries out his fatherly discipline upon us in order that we will never again hunger or thirst for sin's sweet yet deadly satisfaction. Discipline has the effect of causing us to lose our taste for evil. It humbles us, it breaks within our mind and within our heart the illusion of control, the illusion of self-reliance, the illusion of deservedness. And as I read through chapters 11 to 18, I noticed how different David appears in the latter chapters than he does in the earlier chapters. By the end, he is a man humbled and broken, And in the eyes of God, more fit for the throne than he was before. Yet notice that while broken and humbled, David has not given in to despair. Rather, he has cast himself himself upon the mercies of his God. Throughout the narrative in 2 Samuel and in Psalm 3, he sounds like Job. There's this line that comes from Job's lips in Job 13, 15, that I love. He says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. That's what David says. And that is the turning point of faith in the midst of your crisis. When the afflicted one casts himself or herself upon the mercy of God and cries out in utter abandon, Though you slay me, yet will I hope in you. Why? Because where else can I go? And when that happens, faith begins to rise. David's faith is demonstrated in three successive stages in these verses. I want to point them out to you. First, he says that Yahweh is a shield about him. Which is interesting. He uses that preposition about, not not in front of, of before, because shields usually are only one-sided. But David says that the Lord is a shield about him, covering him before and behind. So he's casting himself upon the Lord and he's entrusting the Lord for his protection. Then he says that Yahweh is his glory, meaning that the praise that he seeks comes from God and not from man. This is why, by the way, David won't allow Abishai to remove Shimei's head from his shoulders. That's what Abishai says. Abishai is one of David's mighty men. He comes up to David and he says, why are you putting up with this? Let me go take his head off his shoulders and we'll shut him up real quick. David says, no. Why? Because David is not interested in the praise that comes from man. He's interested in the praise that comes from God. So he trusts in the Lord for his reputation. Finally, he says, Yahweh is the lifter of his head. 
See, David had fled Jerusalem with his head downcast, barefoot, weeping, his head covered in shame. But he says, if God wills to restore me to the throne, he will do so. If not, it wasn't my throne to begin with. So he trusts in the Lord for his position. And I commend the same trust to you. When you cast yourself upon the Lord, cast yourself upon the Lord for his protection from your foes, whoever or whatever they may be. Cast yourself upon the Lord for your reputation and cast yourself upon the Lord for your position. Now the Hebrew of verse 4 is kind of unclear. Some, like the ESV and the King James, take it as a past tense. I cried aloud to the Lord, meaning that David is remembering a time in the past when he cried to the Lord and the Lord answered, and that becomes the basis for his faith that the Lord will hear now. Others, like the NIV or the Christian Standard Version, take it as a present tense. I cry to the Lord, meaning that David is now in the midst of crying to the Lord and he hopes that the Lord will answer from Zion. Still others take it as a conditional verb, meaning that this is a declaration of faith. Whenever I cry to the Lord, he hears and he answers. I'm not sure which one of those is correct. There's not a great deal of difference between the various alternatives. All three display a man who is not giving in to despair, but rather is casting himself upon a God that he has known to be merciful in the past and whom he hopes and trusts will be merciful again. So I want you to take verses 3 and 4 of this psalm and I want you to apply it to the crisis that you recalled at the beginning of this sermon. First, you must win the battle of faith. You must determine in your heart that you will not give in to despair. That you will not exalt your present crisis above God's mercy or God's power to save. Don't do that. That's blasphemy. Listen, despair is not humility, it's unbelief. So determine in your heart that you're not going to turn away from the living God, but rather you're going to use this crisis as an opportunity to drive you back and further in and deeper in to God. Your only hope is his mercy. Lord, says Peter to Jesus, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or like Job said once again, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Second, you must remember the covenant promises of God and you need to cling to them with every ounce of strength that you can muster. God has promised to be your shield, your glory, and the lifter of your head. So trust Him for your protection, your reputation, and your position. In other words, don't give in to despair and don't give in to shame. There is a difference between repentance and shame. If you are in Christ, there is no reason to walk around downcast, covered in shame because of the sin which you've committed, no matter how evil or wicked it is. 
Repentance, yes. Shame, no. This is difficult, especially if your crisis is due to your own sin. But you need to settle in your mind that the praise and the glory that concerns you is that which comes from God and not from men. And when God gives it, nobody can take it away. Finally, you need to cry aloud to the Lord. You need to cry aloud to Him day and night. You need to cry to Him until He answers from His holy hill. And He will answer. And it may take time. How many years of discipline did David endure? But God will answer. Why? Because he cannot resist the cries of his loved ones and he has never, ever turned away a repentant soul. So the fruit of this determination then to cast yourself upon Yahweh, no matter what, to cry out to him until he answers, is that your heart will begin to fill with a quiet confidence that will enable you to remain calm, peaceful, even restful, in the midst of your crisis. And this is the theme of verses 5 and 6. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I want you to think about this. David has been driven out of Jerusalem because his son has turned the nation against him. As he passes through Israel on his way to the Jordan. He has no idea who is friend and who is foe. He has no idea what the future holds for him. That's enough to make for some sleepless nights, right? Wrong. Evidently, David slept like a baby. Just like he had during all those years when Saul was pursuing him to death. How? He had committed his future, his family, his kingdom, his life, his throne to the Lord to do with what he will, and he trusts his covenant God to treat him mercifully. He trusts in the sovereign, steadfast love of his God. This is the same God who looked at his disciples and and in sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves said, don't fear them who can only kill the body. The very hairs of your head are numbered. That's sovereignty that will help you sleep. So let me ask you the question, how are you sleeping? What keeps you up at night? What do you lie awake, anxious about? Mulling over again and again in your mind. Has not the time come to face the fact that anxiety is sin. Fear and anxiety are not of faith. They are unbelief. Anxiety results from a lack of faith in the sovereignty and the steadfast love of God. Cold sweats and panic attacks arise from a failure to believe either that God loves you enough to bring you safely home or that he lacks sufficient power to guard you from all enemies that would prevent you from reaching that home. 
including perhaps your own sin. There were 10,000 reasons why David should not have been able to sleep those nights in the Judean wilderness. Yet he did. How? He knew that his sovereign Lord sustained him. The Lord had sustained him when he shepherded the flocks in the wilderness. The Lord had sustained him when he battled Goliath. The Lord had sustained him through his years on the run from Saul. And the Lord would sustain him now. So how are you sleeping in the midst of your crisis? I'm going to lay a proverb on you. Proverbs 3.24 If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Is that your experience at night? How are you sleeping? Or to ask the question another way, how much do you trust in God to sustain your soul? In verse 7, we arrive at the basis of David's faith. That basis is found in one little word. I want you to see if you can pick it out. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That one little word is the possessive pronoun, my. David pleads with the Lord to arise and save him on the basis of a covenant relationship that he has with his God. See, the Lord had made promises to David. He had made a covenant with David. And though David had royally screwed up, the covenant still stood because it was grounded not on David's own righteousness, but upon the righteousness and the faithfulness and the unshakable promise of his God. The, co- the covenant is described for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read it to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly when the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be forever established. You answer me this question, did you find one conditional statement in that covenant? Not a one. 
This was a unilateral, unconditional covenant between God and David. This is called the Davidic covenant, and it's a component of the larger covenant of grace of which we who believe have become partakers. It is unconditional, it is irrevocable, and it was fulfilled in Christ. And it was on the basis of this covenant promise that David knew that Absalom could not succeed in stealing away his throne and his kingdom. God had sworn by his name to keep that covenant forever. Therefore, when Absalom marched upon David, Absalom was marching upon David's God. And so David called upon his God to arise for battle and to destroy his enemies and to honor his covenant oath. And I want you to know this morning that if you are in Christ, you have just as unshakable and unconditional a covenant on which to rest your confidence that neither will the Lord forsake you. The covenant of grace in Christ was established upon Christ's blood and his righteousness and not upon your own merits and not upon your own working. That covenant will fail the day that Christ's righteousness fails. God will honor that covenant And that's why you can lay your head down at night knowing that you are safe and secure in your arms. That doesn't mean that you will not die. It means that nothing can come between you and your everlasting inheritance in the presence of your God. Nothing. Not even your sin. That's where you root your confidence. So whatever trial you're enduring right now, you put that trial on the scale, and on the other side, you put the covenant of grace. And the weight of that covenant will cause that trial, insofar as your faith is strong and you are thinking rightly, it'll cause that trial to seem but a light and momentary affliction on the way to glory. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ is that son of David to whom God promised the everlasting throne. To him belongs the eternal kingdom and the everlasting inheritance. He became flesh. He took the place of sinners in the judgment of God. And by his blood shed on the cross, he has redeemed all those who believe from sin, death, and the wrath of God. Once that blood was shed, the covenant was sealed for all of God's elect. It is irrevocable, it is unchangeable, and it is unshakable. And it guarantees to all who believe, to all who seek their refuge in God's anointed King, to all who place their hope in Jesus Christ, that all the sovereign power of the Godhead will be at work to bring you into the fullness of the inheritance that that covenant promises. He has sworn by his name the covenant will not fail. 
And that's why it means something when we sing together as the covenant people of God. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The unbreakable covenant of God is the foundational or the foundation for an unshakable confidence in God through Christ. And that confidence is the assurance of faith in the midst of every trial, every crisis, even, nay, especially those crises that are caused by your own sin. This is why David ends his psalm with such confidence. How did he get from verse 1 to verse 8? He ran his soul through the covenant. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Look at verse 2. All around him were saying, there's no salvation for him in God. Verse 8, David says, oh yes there is. That same confidence is available to you this morning in the midst of your darkest crisis. Such confidence, such rock-solid assurance is the birthright of every one of God's redeemed. The confidence, no matter how dark, no matter how despairing, no matter how dreadful things look, God will not forsake me without forsaking his own name. He will surely bring me through this into everlasting joy and everlasting peace. 